he showed me grace this time because the first service he said my older brother. He needed to <laughs> add that in there. So grace was received. And so it's <laughs> now I confessed it. So whatever. Um, my name is John and uh, I am Chris's brother. And it's really good to be here this morning with you. Uh, we, uh, I was here almost exactly a year ago. And so um, thanks so much for having us back. And uh, so it must have been okay last year for Bill to make it okay for us to happen again. So I do want to say thanks to Pastor Bill and Chris for having us back. And we loved being here last year. And so it's been a lot of fun to be here again this year and this morning. And uh, we have been, I hope you've noticed it and seen it and felt it. Uh, we've sung about unity so far this morning. We've spoken of it. We've prayed of it this morning. And we're going to continue to move in that direction today as we dive into the scriptures. So in 2004, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Detroit Pistons were in the NBA Finals. If you know me, we're talking basketball. So uh, the finals happened in 2004, and uh, in the finals, the Lakers were the heavy, heavy favorites to win that series. I mean, nobody thought the Pistons were going to win. Everyone said, it's got to be the Lakers. The Lakers were a stacked team. Uh, Their starting lineup had four guys who we guaranteed to be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, between them, those four guys, in 2004, there were 39 all-star appearances between the four guys, four players on that team. On the Pistons, it was a very different situation. On the Lakers, you had Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal. Anyone heard of those two? Yeah, they're decent basketball players. And so they had like two of the most dominant players to ever play the game. Their coach is Phil Jackson, maybe one of the greatest coaches to ever coach the game of basketball. And so that's who the Lakers have. The Pistons, on the other hand, had essentially a team of nobodies. Uh, Their starting lineup had a total of not 39 all-star appearances, three all-star appearances. And so this series going to the NBA Finals, no one thought the Lakers would lose this thing. And yet, if you go back and look at the stat sheet, uh, they lost that thing. And uh, they lost the series four to one. Like it was a blowout and the Pistons absolutely destroyed them. And no one expected that to happen. And it shouldn't have happened. They were stacked with players and talent and coaching they shouldn't have lost. And so when that happened and they lose 4-1 to one in the NBA Finals, uh, the question everyone was asking, I was asking, that we all have to ask is, what happened? Like, what on earth happened for that to happen, for the Pistons to walk away with that win 4-1? to one. And so when you look at that NBA season, you go back to the beginning of the season, 2004 for the Lakers, what you're going to find out is the Lakers were a fractured team from day one. There was brokenness and disunity on that team from day one. The entire season, Shaq and Kobe went back and forth in the media, literally calling each other names. Like they're on the same team. They call each other names through the media all the time. Player would show up, Shaq would show up for a game, and the media would say, do you hear what Kobe called you today? No, what he called me today. And then he would say, Kobe called this, what do you want to say? And literally they were trading barbs through the media. They were questioning each other's character and leadership ability through the media the entire season. Kobe and Carl Malone, two of the starters, two of these future Hall of Famers, they had a broken relationship through the season, very public. Phil Jackson, the coach of the team, at the end of the season said, and I quote, Kobe Bryant is uncoachable. Shaquille O'Neal, at the end of the season, he demanded a trade. I want out of here. Months later, when the next season started, only five of the 14 players were back on the team. They were shattered from the beginning of the season. No unity at all. The Detroit Pistons, on the other hand, were the very definition of unity. They were nobodies. They didn't have the coach. They didn't have the future Hall of Famers like the Lakers did. But they were unified and they were one. And they walked away four games to one with an NBA championship. Phil Jackson, he writes in his book, 11 Rings, when his coaching days were over. He said, basketball is a great mystery. You can do everything right. You can have the perfect mix of talent, the best system of offense in the game. You can devise a foolproof defensive strategy and prepare your players for every possible eventuality. 
But if the players don't have a sense of oneness as a group, your efforts won't pay off, and the bond that unites a team can be so fragile and so elusive. This morning, we're going to continue in this psalm series. We're going to look at Psalm 133. And in this Psalm 133, it talks about this unity that you see in the scriptures, that God longs for his people, that we would be one. And hear this, and don't miss this, friends. The kind of unity the psalmist is talking about, the kind of unity we see in the scripture that God is calling us to, is a unity that will literally and can literally change everything. So if you have a Bible with you, would you pull it out? Psalm 133 is where we're going to focus this morning. Psalm 133, it's known as one of the songs of ascents. Uh, it is uh, also known as the pilgrim songs. It, between Psalm 120 and 134, those are the pilgrim songs. These were songs that were written for the Jews as they would go and ascend into Jerusalem, as they would go three times a year for their feasts, and they would gather from different walks of life, different tribes, different places, different people. But they would gather as one, as one group, as God's people. They would ascend to Jerusalem together, singing these songs as they go to worship their one God. This is a song, a psalm that is written and attributed to David. So look in verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I want to unpack two words real quick. In the Hebrew, the word good means beneficial, that it benefits us. It is beautiful and it is right. It is right. It is how it should be. And the word pleasant means delightful, sweet, and lovely. Unity that looks like that is enjoyable. Let me read the phrase, the verse one more time. Behold how beneficial and beautiful, how right, and how delightful and sweet and lovely it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, if you've ever been a part of something, maybe it's the, your coworkers at your workplace, uh, it is a church community you were a part of, it is a team, it's your family, where you've experienced like unity, like we are one, like we are clicking. How many of you have experienced that before? Five or six. I feel sad for all the rest of you. So sorry. Um, My guess is more, okay? Other hands are going up now. Oh, I'm here, I'm with you. All right, other hands. Wow, this is great. I'll try it again. So this morning, how many of you have ever been a part of a family, a church community, a sports team or something, where you're like, man, we are clicking. Like, there is unity. This is really good. Anybody? Oh, look at this, everybody. It's so wonderful. We've all experienced that. And the psalmist says, this is enjoyable. Like, this is really good. This is as it should be. But on the other hand, we also know what disunity looks like and what disunity feels like. It looks like the 2004 Los Angeles Lakers, Shaq and Kobe going at it. It looks like American politics sometimes, where right and left, red and blue, are constantly going at it and constantly fighting. It looks like when a family begins to fracture because there is silence or there is fighting, or there is avoidance, it looks and feels like that. It looks like when a church begins to split, and people begin choosing sides, and people begin drawing lines. It looks and feels like that, and many other situations. Would you describe any of those situations I just mentioned with words like beneficial? No. No one benefits in those situations. No one at all. No one is winning when there is disunity. Would you describe any of those situations with the word beautiful? No, in fact, we'd all say it gets really, really ugly. Would you describe any of those situations as right? Of course not. We would all say it's the opposite of right. It's the opposite of how things should be. Would you describe any of those situations as delightful or sweet or lovely? Of course we wouldn't. Of course we wouldn't. If you have experienced disunity, whether it was on a sports team, it was within a family unit, it was in a church community, it was at work, you know that disunity brings a lot of things with it. It brings a certain level of anxiety. Every time you're in it, you feel anxious. It brings anger. 
It brings confusion. It brings fear, defensiveness, mourning of what we could have had or what we used to have, but now it's gone. And disunity brings those kinds of things. And we all know at a soul level, when you're experiencing disunity, that this is not how it should be. Especially, friends, when it's in the body of Christ. When we gather together and we pray to God and we sing to him and we are doing this one gathered in his name and yet we are fractured at a soul level, we all know this is so not how it should be. It should be different from this. And God has a different vision, a different call for the body of Christ. And so these Jews, they would gather together as they ascended to Jerusalem three times a year at these feasts. And they would gather together from different walks of life. They're different people, different groups. They would gather together and they would sing these words. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And so David makes this really beautiful statement on unity, how good and pleasant, wonderful, beneficial it is to be unified. And then he goes on to illustrate his point, like you would, by talking about an oily beard and a mountain. How many of you, you've, you've seen unity before, and you're like, that is so, such like an oily beard. Anybody? Nobody. All right, one person, and you're a liar. Uh, but no, you're not. You, I know, I believe you. I know, I believe you, Nate. No, I believe you. You have. The rest of you know. Nate, yes. As he strokes his beard. All right. Verse 2. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Can I get an amen? Nobody? Okay. There's a couple questions that we need to ask. Uh, Who's Aaron? Why are we dumping oil on him? And what on earth does this have to do with unity? And so if you dug deep into the Old Testament, you find out uh, Aaron is the brother of Moses. Aaron became the first high priest of Israel, of God's people. And a part of this ordination ceremony was that they poured oil on him to set him apart, to consecrate him as high priest. Now, the other priests also had oil put on them, but it was sprinkled on them. For Aaron as high priest, for him to be consecrated, it was different, and they poured it on him. Now, they weren't stingy with the oil in this situation. How many of you do the whole young living, the cute bottles of oil? You got those cute little bottles and the cute little drops. This is not that. Uh, they poured the oil on Aaron. Like it, the scriptures say, it came down on his hair and through his beard and all over his clothes. Now those little bottles, when you took a couple of drops, like that's plenty, that's enough. We can smell it everywhere. Imagine this oil with Aaron. This oil was incredibly fragrant. It was expensive. It was sacred. The fragrance of it was incredibly attractive, and it was huge. Imagine the scent that it would go out, the power of that, the width of that, as they poured it all over him, that you'd be able to smell that, and it was attractive, and it was beautiful. Not like that little diffuser in your home. Like, it was powerful. And so, friends, when the people of God, we live together in unity, uh, it is like being consecrated for the work of God, being set apart for the work of God, made holy for the work of God. Friends, when we are unified, we live together in unity, It is like a beautiful and powerful aroma whose presence is enormous and overpowering, and you can't miss it. That's what unity is like. So my friends, unity is like an oily beard. Verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life ever after. I know what you think when you see your kids playing well together. You walk in, you're like, this is so like the dew coming off of Mount Hermon. Anyone ever said that to your kids? No? All right. Uh, no one said that to our kids? Of course we wouldn't. This is Mount Hermon. We have a picture of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is on the border of Syria 
in Lebanon. It covers uh, 600 plus square miles, almost 10,000 feet above sea level. It is the highest point in Israel. Uh, Its peaks are covered in snow, as you see there, uh, for about two-thirds of the year. Uh, In During that year, uh, there is so much precipitation between the snow and the rain and the dew. And what all of it does is it seeps into the cracks and the crevices and the pores of the rock. And it goes down the mountains. That's what it constantly does. It pours down and it begins to form little brooks and little streams, which eventually form into rivers. And as you can see around this mountain, there is life all around it. There is lush trees. Uh, If you study Mount Hermon, you'll know that there is animal life all around it. And these little brooks and streams, what they do is they begin to form rivers. And then these rivers go out into what is around Mount Hermon is incredibly dry country. And these little streams and brooks form rivers that go out and these rivers give birth to new life. And so friends, the people of God living in unity, it is like dew that revives, refreshes, sustains, brings life and growth all around it. My friends, the people of God, as we live in unity, it is like streams and rivers that go out into a dry land that gives birth to new life. And so unity is like a dew-covered mountain. Look back into the passage. David closes this song by saying that uh, unity like this, when we experience it, we get to experience God's blessing, life forever. Uh, In the middle of Utah, there is a forest called the Pando Forest. It sounds like I'm talking about the movie Avatar, but I'm not. And we have a picture of it. Pretty crazy, yeah? Great picture. So it's the Pando Forest. Uh, It's a pretty amazing thing. It weighs, scientists believe it weighs uh, about 13 million pounds. It covers 106 acres. It contains 40,000 trees. And um, it's connected to one root system. And one root system... Uh, they believe, scientists say that it all came from one seed and all 40,000 trees share the same DNA. Isn't that insane? I know, I said wow when I first learned about it. 40,000 trees all sharing the same DNA from one seed. And this uh, scientists call it one living organism. And so essentially what you're looking at here is a one tree forest. Isn't that amazing? And as soon as I learned about it, the first thing I thought of was that's the church. Like, that's who we are. That's the call on Scripture for us to be. We are such a large group of people, and yet we are one, and we are united, and we are together as one, and we are supposed to be one together. Paul, he writes to the Christians in Rome, he says this in Romans chapter 12, Just as our bodies have many parts, each part has a special function. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. And then he writes to the church in Ephesus, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And friends, hear these. I love these verses. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. Doesn't that sound like the Pando Forest to you? 
We are connected in one. The unity that Paul writes about to these churches, these Christians, the unity that David beautifully writes about in this song that the Jewish people would sing as they ascended to Jerusalem together. We see that in the very prayer of Jesus as he prays for those, his disciples, and those who would come to be disciples because of their ministry. Friends, if you're here today and you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm part of the body of Christ, this is a prayer that he prayed for you, John 17. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world would know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. And Jesus prays this incredibly passionate prayer that the body of Christ forever, his disciples there, but then all of those who would come to believe, he prays this passionate prayer that we would be united and unified as one in such a way that it would actually reflect the relationship between God the Father and the Son. Let me ask you, how tight do you think God the Father and the Son are? My theological response is pretty tight. That's my deep theological response. I'm thinking it's pretty tight. And Jesus prays, and Father, may the church, may those now, my disciples now, and all those who will ever believe, may they be so united and so unified that they would actually be a reflection of the relationship between God the Father and the Son. And then this is the most important question you ask with this passage is why? And thankfully, he answers that in his very prayer. May they be so unified, reflecting God himself, so that the world would know that God has sent his Son that the world would know in the very existence of God. And secondly, that the world would know that that God loves them. Friends, that is enormous. Jesus passionately prays that we would be one so that the world would know that God exists and that that God loves them. The purpose and the passion behind the prayer of Jesus is that the lost would be found and that streams of water would go out into the dry land giving birth to new life. Now, If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know that everything I've said so far sounds wonderful and flowery and great, but if you've been around the church for any length of time, you also know that that can be really difficult. That when we gather together as a body of Christ, that we're unified like that. Because the truth is, we are incredibly diverse in this room this morning. Even just in this room, let alone the church universal. We are incredibly different this morning. Uh, The church is made up of a very diverse group of people. We're diverse in age. Yesterday, I turned 41 years old. Some of you are thinking, you're just a young kid still, and I love you so much. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, fella, you're near the end, and I don't like you as much. Um, But you and I, in this room, there is incredible diversity even in our age, the generations in which we come from. There is diversity here in style and preference. Middle school, high school, college for me is the 90s. I still think we should all be wearing flannel and Doc Martens and listening to grunge music. I think that's how it should be for all time but no one else agrees. Well, my other 90s kids do, but nobody else does. I have certain preferences, and we all have them. We are different and diverse in race and culture. We are different and diverse in our political beliefs. We are different and diverse even in our theological beliefs. We are different and diverse in our traditions than which we came up in. Friends, the church is incredibly diverse with so many things that we would say are things that would differentiate us. 
that make us different from one another. And yet, this is something I think we have to hold on to, is that God knew when he prayed this prayer, when Jesus prayed this prayer, he knew us before we took our first breath, he knew how diverse the church would be. And still the prayer for the church was that we would still be a reflection of the relationship between God the Father and the Son. Us, as diverse as we are, as the diverse as the church is universal, the prayer was still that we would be so united and so unified that we would look like God, the relationship of God and the Son, and so that the world would know that he exists and that he loves them. Friends, that is enormous. I read, a, or sorry, I listened to a sermon recently by A.W. Tozer. It was one that was recorded in 1960. Uh, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. That's I think one of my favorite book of all time. And uh, in this sermon, he talked about unity. And he said that we have this unbelievable, unbelievable ability as Americans. And I'm going to lump myself in with you. I'm not one, but I want to be one so badly. Chris is, and I'm jealous now. But I want someday, fingers crossed, I'll be one of you. Tozer says, we have this unbelievable ability as Americans that in times of war or in times of crisis, we have this ability to take all the things that differentiate us and push them all aside and say, no, we are Americans and we stand together. He said, we have this unbelievable ability in times of war and times of crisis to take all of the little things that make us different and say, those things don't matter anymore because there's something that is of far more importance. And that's the thing that gets the most attention. And that's the thing that stands at the center. My friends, today you need to know, I need to know, I need to live in the knowledge of we are living in crisis. We live in a world that is fractured and broken and hurting and in desperate need of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' prayer was that you and I, the church universe, we would be so united and so unified that the world would see us, recognize the reality of God and his love for them. And so the thing that unites us as Christians... uh, we are not to unite around tradition. Tradition is really good. I grew up with tradition. It's very important to me. It's meaningful to me. But that is not the thing you and I are to unite around. Friends, we are not to unite around preferences or styles. In turning 41, I'm so old now, I have, I have personal opinions and preferences. Uh, but that's not the thing we're to unify around. Friends, we're not to unify even around a theological non-essentials. We, the church, who are radically diverse, are to be united around the person of Jesus. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, it's a fantastic book, he writes this, and uh, don't miss this, it's beautiful. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Friends, when you and I are in tune with Jesus, we are automatically in tune with one another. The thing that unifies us, the things that we are to unite around is not tradition and personal opinion. It's Jesus. And when you and I are are in tune with him, the church itself becomes unified. And we become a reflection of the relationship between God the Father and his son. Let me ask you this. In 2004 with the Los Angeles Lakers, what was the cost of disunity? What was the cost? They lost the championship. They lost a trophy. Basketball is my favorite sport in the whole world. And my response to that is, who cares? It's a trophy. Someone will win a trophy this year. Someone will win one next year. It'll just go on and on. Who cares? Let me ask you this question. What is the cost of disunity within the church? That's really, really heavy. Because, friends, at this point, we're talking about souls, and we're talking about eternity. Friends, the stakes are far too high for us to ever get caught up in or focused on things that divide us. 
for us to actively and intentionally foster and build unity within the church, it will require that we dedicate ourselves to a number of things. The first being that we love one another. Jesus said, what's the most important thing? When he was asked, he says, to love your neighbor and to love God. Friends, it will require that we dedicate ourselves to loving each other. It will require that we dedicate ourselves to humility, that we live in humility with one another, that we are humble people. It will require that we dedicate ourselves to forgiveness because if we're living in community, I am for sure at some point going to offend you or hurt you and I will need to be forgiven. And the reverse is true. It will require that we as a community, that we sacrifice for one another, that we dedicate ourselves to sacrificing for one another. And most importantly, it will require that we dedicate ourselves to fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because when we are in tune with him, we become in tune with one another. And so the poet, this incredible songwriter, David, he writes this song for his people to sing as they ascend to Jerusalem. From all different walks of life, they're all different, like 40,000 different trees, and yet they're one. And as they ascend to Jerusalem, they sing this song together as they go as one to worship their one God. And then some almost 3,000 years later, uh, this group in Canadegua gathers together to look at these lyrics another time. And this is what the words say. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the beard, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. So may we, the people of God, may we live together in unity. May we be set apart for the work of God. May our unity be fragrant and attractive and far-reaching. May our unity in Jesus bring refreshment and new life into a world that desperately needs living water. And may the church know and live in the blessing of God, and may those who don't yet know Jesus come to know the reality of the God who created them and his love for them. Amen? This morning, there is no possible way we could finish in a more perfect moment than for us to gather around the table together for us to gather as a very diverse group of people, and yet we come gathered together, and the one thing that matters the most that unifies us is Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to gather around the table uh, to receive communion together. The bread represents Christ's body that was broken for us. Uh, The juice represents his blood that was shed for us. And this morning, we're going to come. We'll gather together. When you uh, get up in a moment, would you take those elements? Would you head back to your seat? And would you reflect on the thing that unifies us all? Would you reflect on what Christ has done for us, his love shown to us? And in a moment, I will come back up. We'll take those elements together as a body. Amen? All right, come when you're ready.